I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one piece of news that touches Strong Town's conversation each week, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner at Multi-Studio in Kansas City, and I'm joined today by Daniel Harrigus, senior editor and founding member of the Strong Towns organization. Hello, Daniel. It's very good to have you on today. Hi, thanks, Abby. So the article that we are going to be talking about today was published in the New York Times this week by Connor Dotree, and it is entitled Twilight of the NIMBY. So the article is basically a profile of the NIMBY as an American archetype, specifically centered on uh, California and following a suburban homeowner named Susan Kirsch, who runs a nonprofit called Catalyst for Local Control that pushes back against statewide housing policy measures intended to subvert local anti-development activism. So for anyone who has not yet heard of the term NIMBY, it means not in my backyard and is used to describe people who seem to be compulsively opposed to any development or change in their neighborhood. And while Ms. Kirsch in the article has said that she's reluctantly made peace with the term, she describes her philosophy as being rooted in the 1970s ideological backlash that created modern environmentalism and rejected the assumption that growing an economy at all costs is a good thing. She believes in slow growth as a perspective, and it's partly reinforced by a distrust in large institutions and this type of small C conservatism that local government is better and more responsive to citizens than a bigger one that is further away. So she represents one person in this longer movement fighting development and campaigning for the right for local cities and suburban cities to have control over the built environment. Fundamentally, they are fighting for neighborhood control, even at the expense of future residents and at the macro scale, future generations. So topics like these, I think, are what really personally draw me to be so interested in urban planning issues. And it certainly is true for just the housing conversation generally, because even especially today in a nation where everything is kind of cast as, uh, you know, red or blue, left or right, uh, in this kind of dichotomy, these issues, I think, really flip that and transcend that that kind of conversation of quick take politics, because they are wrapped up in more and more so, I guess you would say, moralistic cultural narratives that transcend those kinds of things. And so, Daniel, you're somebody who has really written about housing for many, many years Um, What was kind of your initial thought on this perspective that was painted by the author in this piece of Susan and people like Susan broadly? I was really, really drawn to this article because of the approach that it took of simultaneously painting this person who's sort of emblematic of a whole type of person as a complex, sympathetic character who's also kind of tragically wrong. You know, I've been aware of Susan Kirsch for a number of years. I've been aware of Livable California, the first organization that she founded, um, as well as the one you named. And she's a really familiar character to me, and I think to a lot of us. Um, I I know dozens of people like her. 
where I live in Sarasota, Florida. I know people like her sort of among my parents' social circles in Minnesota. Good friends of my parents, people I know really well, espouse a lot of the same rhetoric for a lot of the same reasons. I think we should be clear, and Abby, you and I kind of have talked about this before, that there are a lot of different reasons that people might oppose housing construction um, near them or in general. And so I don't want to conflate all of those reasons. But I think there is there is a type of person who tends to be, you know, who, who's a homeowner, who tends to be older of the baby boomer generation, who sees their understanding of sort of the, the battle around housing in terms of exactly the stakes that somebody like Susan Kirsch lays out. You know, this is communities, sort of homegrown communities, people who just care about their neighborhood and like the way it is, and they're fighting for local control against overbearing, top-down, outside interests that want to dictate what they have to see built on their street. And it is rooted in these moral touchstones of a different era. And as a result, I think you have these people who are kind of, you know, you you shared a quote with me that's, what was the origin of the, the quote that you shared that you either... You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain, which I believe is from Batman. <laughs> you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've had some really interesting and kind of fraught conversations with people of this sort of age and worldview and mindset because it's very familiar to me. I was to a large extent raised with it. You know, I've always considered myself an environmentalist. One of Kirsch's touchstones that's cited repeatedly in this New York Times piece is the book Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. I love that book. I think the ideas in it, some of them have aged better than others, just in terms of sort of factually what has happened to the world since then. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. It's a touchstone for me. It's a touchstone for the Strong Towns movement, frankly. I am really sympathetic to this view that like a lot of the problems in our world come from making things too big and from empowering interests outside of local communities, from dulling bottom-up feedback and empowering higher and higher levels of authority or centralized control or centralized finance to dictate what happens on the ground. So I'm very sympathetic to the idea of like, why isn't it in the hands of a community, the neighbors who know the place best, who care about the place most, why don't they get the ultimate say in what happens around them? Um, With a caveat, because I don't, I don't think that that works when it comes to housing. I don't think that it works when it comes to the problems we face today. But I'll just start out by saying I'm fundamentally sympathetic to that narrative. Um, and I think that it is sort of a an internally consistent worldview that made sense in its era. Um, the article kind of kind of describes that era. You know, the you've had a couple decades of really, really rapid suburbanization by the beginning of the 1970s when you have a bunch of baby boomers coming of age and you have a strong backlash against the the pace and the scope and kind of horror at the the paving over of the countryside and the cookie cutter nature of it all and just the the seemingly out of control scale of growth the problem is that people most people form their kind of moral narrative about the world early in their life And then they really have a hard time shifting it. Very few people, I think, ever successfully complicate their own sort of moral story about who's the villain and who's the hero. And so in the same way that you have people out there who like, they learned during the Cold War that socialism was, that was the villain in their story of the whole world and it explained everything. And you can find those same people today 
blaming all the world's evils on socialism, including the ones that have nothing to do with socialism. You can find people doing that with uh, the religious right. You can find people doing that with any number of like, here is the villain that explains everything. The person being profiled in this article, I think she is emblematic of a set of people for whom the villain is big institutions. The villain is corporate America. It's plutocratic money and power. And it's a government that is seen as being subservient to plutocratic money and power. And they understand everything through that lens. So a developer wants to build a bunch of townhomes in your neighborhood. That's a big corporation coming to tell me what I have to endure in the place that I live every day. How is that right? Like that's the root of where it's coming from. And we can go on to kind of complicate that story, but I feel like there is an internally consistent story there that is very persuasive to millions of people. Yeah. So I, I think that all makes a lot of sense to me. I'm also somebody who is sympathetic to the perspective that Susan is sharing, although I don't agree with the, you know, taking that and then translating that into, you know, being against development and change in a neighborhood. I think we have very different perspectives. And I know strong towns and people within the strong towns movement have different perspectives about how you more proactively approach that rather than to just kind of freeze things in time. But I am sympathetic to that idea that even the term NIMBY kind of reduces people to being a cartoon. And and the article mentions that and it actually made me think of an article that you wrote, Daniel, which actually is one of my favorite pieces that you've written um, that was entitled, We Don't Live in a World of Cartoon Villains. And you wrote it in response to kind of all the drama going on during the 2020 election. But I feel like it's a piece that really, um, you know, can be separated from that and applied to so many other things. Um, because there is kind of this this need to cut through these labels that we put on people and these cartoons that we've painted in these spaces um, for political sake and get to an understanding of, of one another and an understanding of perspectives that we fundamentally dif- disagree with in order to move forward. Maybe that's idealistic, but I, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist and I would hope that there are more proactive ways that we can approach how our neighborhoods evolve and change. I, I definitely understand kind of this perspective of when every new building that is being proposed is a large scale development project, maybe it, it's, it's kind of easy to see that as kind of a financialized, top-down, kind of extractive project that is not actually providing wealth-building opportunities for the residents. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't benefit people who might you know, have the opportunity to rent in an area. And it doesn't mean that striking something like that down is going to suddenly change the demand that exists for people who want to live in an area. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's very important that we come to an understanding of different people's perspectives and a more proactive approach to development in general. Yeah. Um, No, I I agree with that. I'm glad you brought up the cartoon villains, because I think that that's really, really important here. You don't always have to, I mean, politics is politics. If you're trying to win a fight, you don't have to persuade everyone. You don't always have to be the peacemaker. Um, Ultimately, you have to, you have to persuade enough people to win the policy fight that you're trying to win. That said, um, 
where that has led, particularly in the really fraught housing politics of California, is to a whole bunch of kind of one-dimensional caricatures, you know, and you will see, like, the the people associated with livable California and with these groups, like, there's a whole set of people you can easily find on social media, for example, just saying they're racist, they're segregationist, they, they, they hate their own children, they don't want their children to be able to live in, like, it's this ridiculous kind of, I think the first step to understanding someone not to not to agree with them, but to understand them is to come up with a characterization of them that they would agree with in their own words. And then you can have a conversation. From there, you can complicate it. So I, I kind of led by saying, I get where this person and a lot of people like her are coming from. It's familiar to me. It's this sort of boomer, slow growth, uh, small is beautiful movement that I was raised with because my parents were really adjacent to that, that culture and that worldview. Um, it's a whole thing. Now, I, I would like to complicate it because I think it's wrong in some ways that actually, if you're willing to take take someone in good faith, take someone at their word that they think they are the hero in the story, you can go from there and you can kind of complicate it on their terms. Um, like, I mean, to talk about, you you kind of raised the specter of top-down versus bottom-up. And it, it is, it's deeply ingrained in American culture to sympathize with the bottom-up, with the underdog, with David versus Goliath. Like... Um, it is really, really deep in the American psyche. Like we want to be the self-sufficient, heroic individual. You know, we're doing our own thing. We're building things with our own two hands. The reality of the life of someone who is like your typical suburban homeowner in America, they may feel that that is what they are and what their community is. And I think what the Strong Towns message has to offer is that the reality is a whole lot more complicated than that. Um, you look at someone who, so let's, let's take, for example, the, the woman profiled in this New York Times piece, Susan Kirsch, um, because it talks about her life story and it talks about her home. I, I pulled up some data on her home on Redfin as well. And I just want to say, you know, I'm not in support of doxing anyone. This is information that is public record and it's public record with regard to someone who has made themselves a public figure. So I want to say it in that light. She bought her house in 1979 for $112,000. And at the time, the national median home price was sixty-three thousand, and California's median home price was eighty-four thousand. So, not nearly the kind of gap that you see today between that region and maybe a more affordable national baseline. This is someone who is starting out as a young adult. They're buying their first home. They're they're getting established. Like this is the middle class American dream. It's not a big home. It's not a fancy home. She's not living in some mansion looking down on on the poor. This is a post-war bungalow. Built in 1949, it's 1,200 square feet, so that's a very modest home. The article also points out that her home is now valued at nearly $2 million, and she's paying incredibly low property taxes on it. She's, it's only assessed for tax purposes at 250000 because of a quirk of California tax law called Proposition 13, which passed in 1978, a year before Kirsch bought her house, and was designed to keep incumbent California homeowners from being priced out of their homes by, by a growing tax burden. Um, it, it essentially caps the year-over-year increase in your property taxes as long as you don't sell your house. So the reason I raise all of that is Kirsch very much, she's concocting her whole narrative in this interview for the New York Times, and she's selling herself and the people who are like-minded as this heroic underdog community standing up against large institutional forces that want to steamroll them. But I think the reality is that 
this whole cohort of people have been incredible beneficiaries of large institutional forces, of massive subsidies for suburban home building in the post-World War II era, of massive billions and billions of dollars of investment in the interstate highway system, in freeways that opened up huge swaths of suburban land to development, um, which essentially that that allowed this campaign of mass home building for the middle classes. It also greatly devalued a bunch of inner city neighborhoods and created this really historically abnormal economic environment for decades. You layer on top of that the tax benefits for home ownership, the mortgage interest deduction, uh, Proposition 13 in California, and similar laws in a lot of states um, that favor long-term incumbent homeowners that give them really, really advantageously low property taxes. It just doesn't stand up to scrutiny to say, here I am and I'm someone who worked hard for my house and I love my house and I work hard to lift up my community. You know, I, um, I watch out for my neighbors. We take care of the place. We clean up trash in the park. Aren't we great? And I'm not trying to mock it. These people really do do that. But what has happened is you have a generation of people who were the beneficiaries of massive institutional forces, top-down forces that created a one-of-a-kind experiment, the suburban experiment. And now we see it falling apart. Now we see it unable to be replicated generation after generation. And so there's a whole bunch of younger people who would love to live Susan Kirsch's American dream who who can't dream of it. You know, middle-class white-collar people in California who have given up on ever owning a home in California. Um, and that's the dissonance you have to reckon with, that there's something like profoundly broken here. And the way in which it's broken complicates the narrative of the pure noble-hearted community standing up against the exploitative outside developer. Yeah, it's it I mean it's really hard to believe in that I'm um, you know she may perceive herself as an underdog but it is when you put it like that it makes it really hard to sympathize with that position because so many people can't even imagine owning a home in California and in many cities across the country. Um, you know, at, at the same time, it's, it's one of those things where uh, can you get through to people who hold this perspective and, and essentially hold the cards and have so much power at the local level? I know on, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, the YIMBY, the Yes in My Backyard movement, have been, you know, really focusing, I, I, I am reluctant to say top, on top-down kind of measures, state preemption, um, even national policy, but they've that's been kind of their area of focus, whereas on the other end of the spectrum, NIMBYs are kind of more integrated into uh, local governments and are able to stop development in that way. And so you can see kind of, you know, again, the irony of of where these things are falling and how they're playing out. I, I guess I'm I'm curious if you think that this culture where people at the local level feel this need to freeze communities in time, to have control over so much in their community can be changed over time and can evolve over time. Um, because and I say that as somebody who lives in a neighborhood where I, I actually feel that people are pretty proactive about their perspectives on development. It doesn't mean that they're either NIMBY or YIMBY, but it does seem that, you know, it's not as uh, black and white as, as you might, you know, 
often see it kind of on the internet conversation on these kinds of issues. Um, but but there is kind of a yes mentality that I think may, may be unique, but maybe it's not as unique as, as I'm thinking it is. I'm just curious if, if you think there is a way to reach people like Susan to kind of shift perspectives around entitlement and control um, into something that that is ultimately uh, more helpful for communities broadly. I think there's a way to reach a lot of the kinds of people who are persuaded by people like Susan. Um, you know, she's profiled in this article as someone who has spent the better part of two decades fighting like a townhome project at the end of her street. Yeah, they called it unimaginable density. And then when I went and looked it up and it isn't a very big townhome project. It's like just so. in 20 units or something. On um, Yeah, um, it's really, <laughs> um, this is someone who is doggedly persistent and has yeah. dug in and has made this her life's work. So like. Yeah, and it's to preserve the nature patch that <laughs> is kind of sad. There are people who, as I said before, if your goal is to to get housing built in your community or to get zoning changed in your community or whatever it is, you don't have to persuade everyone and you would be foolhardy to spend your energy trying. You have to just have a winning coalition to win on that issue. But I think that narratives take on a life of their own. And I think there is a countervailing narrative to the, the quote unquote NIMBY homeowner narrative that is really, really important. And I think for every Susan Kirsch, there are 15 people, 20 people who find that message superficially persuasive, but aren't diehards, aren't immovable. I'm on next door in my neighborhood. It's a single family home neighborhood with a lot of retirees. It's And a lot of the kind of people who go out and pick up trash in the park and are really, really invested in the day-to-day of the community. Um, you know, they're the ones that um, pester the city about putting in a crosswalk across a dangerous street where we really need a crosswalk and they are on their case. And like, these are people who deeply care. Um, a lot of them are really anxious right now about a proposed apartment complex that's going up at the edge of the neighborhood. And I chimed in and actually got a really positive reception on next door just by sort of complicating the things that they thought they knew a little bit um, mm-hmm. and doing it respectfully, not doing it as you're a NIMBY. Yeah, exactly. Name calling is, is probably the one way to lose arguments. <laughs> Yeah, and not assuming motivations. I think yeah. so I think there are more persuadable people out there than you would think, but a lot of people are coming from these narratives in which it's really easy to imagine the developer is the bad guy. And the reasons why you might want to open up your neighborhood to a little more change, to a little more unpredictability in terms of what might get built. That can seem a little scary. The reasons why you might want that are a little more elusive to a lot of people. Um So I think the power of the strong towns message here is really important because we, um, and we actually, it's our member drive this week. Um, Well, it won't be by the time listeners are hearing this, but we're, we're wrapping up a member drive. Um, And we were really excited during this member drive to announce five new major long-term campaigns that are in our strategic plan. One of which is incremental housing. So um, we've made it our mission at strong towns to, Um, to support policy changes that would open up every neighborhood across America to the next increment of development, not to massive leaps in development intensity that radically transform the place, but to make the next increment accessible and legal and 
feasible for small scale people to do, feasible for small developers, for, for a homeowner to add a unit onto their own home, add an, add an accessory unit or turn it into a duplex or do, do things that do evolve the neighborhood over time, the kinds of things people used to do as a matter of course. The kinds of things that Susan could do on her own that property. Aren't, she could, yeah. <laughs> and that aren't the plutocratic outside developer in the same sense, but that are development. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, this is development. And a lot of yeah. the people we cheer who are doing this work call themselves incremental developers. Um, but I think there is a world of difference between what we're talking about and the nightmare scenario that um, that these livable California folks um, say they're afraid of, of massive corporate developers running roughshod over communities. Um, I think the reality is that if you want to talk about control, you want to talk about local control, um, we actually have a system that denies control to communities, that denies actual agency to shape their own destiny over time because we have locked places in amber when there are powerful sources of feedback saying this place needs to evolve. You know, you have a community where the homes, where these tiny little bungalows are valued at $2 million and kids who grew up there can't ever hope to live there again. Something is deeply out of whack. Um, that is a bunch of people who don't have any agency. That is service workers who work in the community who don't have the option to live anywhere near their job. That is kids who can't move back home to a place that they grew up with and love and are invested in. That is homeowners who are maybe, you know, they might be house rich, but they might be cash poor, who would love to put that accessory unit on either as a source of rental income or because they want to house an aging parent or something. Who can't do that because we've established this straitjacket set of rules about what a neighborhood can look like and once built it, thus it will always be so. Um, I think it's important to highlight the ways in which that status quo actually denies agency to a huge range of people. Um, at Strong Towns, we like to talk about how missing middle housing used to be a stair step into the middle class for huge numbers of people, including people coming out of poverty, including immigrants. You know, you'd, You'd be an immigrant um, mill worker in New England a century ago. You would buy a triple decker and you would um, house, you know, your extended family in another one of the units and you'd rent one out and you would build some wealth through that investment. And there were all these paths to helping co-create your neighborhood that we have foreclosed on. Now we're in a vicious cycle where because all those paths have been foreclosed, the only people who get to do development are big corporate developers. They're the only ones who can navigate the thicket of regulations and restrictions that we put in place. And so everyone looks at that and says, I don't like developers. They're never rooted in the community. They're always some faceless corporate entity. They never seem to care about what the neighbors think. That is part of the suburban experiment. That is, that is of our making. And what the Strong Town's vision isn't just deregulate everything and let the same people who are building now build the same kinds of things, just more of it. The Strong Town's vision is radically open up our neighborhoods to the kind of evolution that they used to experience as a mad matter, of course, and create a whole lot more optionality for a whole lot of people. And the cost of that is that your neighborhood isn't frozen in amber. If you live there for 30 years, you won't move out of the same place you moved into. And you don't get to have an expectation of that, but you actually have more agency or more efficacy in your own life is a phrase that Kirsch uses that she's quoted using in the article. But the trade-off is your neighborhood is going to change. 
and I have been I've been talking for a while, and I'll just wrap up with this thought. It's not lost on me that the ideas that are the touchstone for the Susan Kirsches of the world, a lot of them come out of the early environmental movement. Um, you know, they come out of small is beautiful. They come out of concerns about the environmental impact of suburbanization during the 1960s and 70s. What's missing in what that's morphed into is an understanding that this is an ecology movement. And the way you have a healthy ecology is you let a million sources of bottom-up feedback create feedback loops and work their magic. The way you have an ecosystem that functions is you have a place that can grow and, and flux and change over time. And our cities and our neighborhoods need to be that way too. And so people who maybe are drawing their cues from the environmental movement, they sort of, they're missing the ecology piece of it. And they're instead embracing a vision of stasis that like, I bought into this one thing and I want to have absolute control over this one thing and forever it shall be so, that is completely at odds with the genuine spirit of this this intellectual touchstone of the ecology, slow, slow growth, small is beautiful movement that they think they're drawing on. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's a brilliant piece of irony that I think we can end on. But before we finish today, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of this show where we can talk about anything we've been reading, watching, listening to, just anything that's been taking up time in our life these days. Daniel, what have you been up to? I, I hear the baby a little bit. <laughs> you hear the baby a little bit? Yeah, he's in the other room. Um, <laughs> I've been sleep training my seven-month-old, which... Abby was intrigued to hear about this in a private conversation earlier. So for the non-parents in the audience, um, <laughs> just because this is fascinating to me as it someone who like has had to learn all about this. Babies don't really know that they can go to sleep by themselves. It's not a thing they're born <laughs> knowing how to do. You know, when you have a newborn, you rock them to sleep, you sing to them. You, and if they're tired, they get they don't get groggy, they get angry. You know, babies start screaming when they're tired. And what they're saying to you is, I'm really tired. Why is no one putting me to sleep? Come on, come on, mom, dad, get with it. I need someone to put me to sleep. Um, and some will grow out of that on their own as they get a little older. And mine was not, my first one did, my, my, my daughter who's two now. She slept like a dream by the time she was three months old. Uh, my son, not so much. He's been waking up like every hour and a half all night. So we bit the bullet and we sleep trained him. And that means that you let them cry and you let them cry, and you let them cry until they figure out that they can go to sleep. And you do that for a few days, and then like a switch flips, and now he sleeps through the night. He slept 13 hours straight, only like with, you know, the occasional little whimper and tossing and turning last night. So um, my life has now improved a lot because I get to sleep. But um, it's this like really emotionally excruciating thing for parents where it's like, what do you mean? I just have to let my baby cry. Like every instinct is telling me I can't do this. Um so that's what we've been doing. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of fun. I've had now a the little of, guy is sleeping like a dream. Uh huh. <laughs> I've had a couple of friends uh, deal with those kinds of issues, and I'm sure it's very difficult to listen to a baby cry and not run to to help him or her. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure you guys are doing doing great, and hopefully, he learns how to fall asleep very very shortly. <laughs> it's not a long training. Um, well, I've actually, I've had family in town all week. And so that has been kind of taking up most of my time. They actually, my youngest sister came in last weekend and has been staying at my house. 
Um, it's kind of funny because our house used to be a duplex. So it's kind of set up in a way where a portion of it is like, I call it the guest suite. And it, you know, it has its own front door and it has its own kind of entire like area. Um, and so, yeah, it's somebody converted it back. They converted it into a single family, but like didn't actually put the work in to like make it like a typical single family house. And so there's a lot of aspects of the house that are still, I, I guess I'll say duplex-esque. Um, but yeah, it's been been really fun. It's kind of been an experiment in co-housing a little bit um, and just fun kind of waking up in the morning and having coffee with family and doing things after work. We've gone to a lot of parks. Um, there's actually, Kansas City has a really nice riverfront park that we've been spending a lot of time at with like a trail and um, a lot of uh, a lot of new apartments that have been built down there. And so it's really activated the area and made the park very vibrant and wonderful. And so I've actually been spending a lot of time there these days. So yeah, just kind of enjoying the summertime and trying to make the most of it. Uh, you may or may not know from our com- from my conversations with Chuck on the show, but I'm just not a winter person. So I thrive <laughs> if the sun is out. So we will end it there. Uh, thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Abby. Take care. Let me show you what I-